Before I begin, what I'd like to do is to uh, read the scripture lesson for the morning. Luke chapter 7. Chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 36, although the story as actually has a precursor, starts earlier than that, the paragraph before, but I'll start at verse 36, and I'll read all the way over to the end of the chapter. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, and he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 and when they could not pay, he canceled the debts for, them, for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me the water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at table with him began say, to say among themselves, Who is this that can even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. About every ten years or so, I get the itch for a new car even if I don't need one. You know, right now, I'm driving a 2012 Toyota Camry. It runs great, runs great, and if I keep doing the maintenance on it, if I keep changing the oil and doing the regular maintenance kind of things, it'll probably last another five or 10 years. You know, the practical side of me says, drive it till the wheels fall off. Because that's really the only way you get your money out of a car. Just drive it till the wheels fall off. But as you know, there is a big difference between what we need and what we want. And I really want a new car, you know. And besides, I'm due, I'm overdue for a midlife crisis. <laughs> I, I, unless I live to be 154, I need one right now. And my, my problem was made even worse because when I was in Toledo for those six months, every day I would have to drive up and down Central Avenue. Now, you don't really think about Toledo, but in, in Toledo, all the car dealerships 
almost all are in one area on Central Avenue. They call it, literally, they call it the Central Avenue Strip. There's a stretch of Central Avenue where car dealership from Reynolds Road all the way out to almost McCord Road, uh, it's about a half mile, there is every single car dealership you could think of. Uh, Nissan, Toyota, Lexus, Cadillac, Honda, Volkswagen, they're all there. So it makes car shopping very easy. You just, you know, you just cop from one, you can literally walk from one parking lot to the next and, and shop for cars. And so I'm driving up and down this street every day for six months thinking, I would really like a new car. And, and then I see one day this beautiful, bright red Mercedes <laughs> AMG convertible. It's out on the corner of the lot looking at me every time I go by. And there is a big yellow sign in the windshield with black lettering that says $350. That's piqued my attention. And so for two weeks, I'm driving up and down the street, and I see this red Mercedes AMG convertible. And I'm thinking, I need that car. I mean, you need a car that goes from zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds <laughs> and has 550, uh, 577 horsepower. I, that would take care of my midlife crisis. And besides, I'm thinking to myself, that's really the car my wife needs to drive to work. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking, you know. That would be really nice for her. And so one day I had a little extra time on the way home, and so I pulled into the lot, and I got out of my 2012 Toyota Camry, and, you know, a salesman was on me like a buzzard on roadkill. He was right there. And I said, uh, that is a beautiful car. He said, yeah, it is a beautiful car, isn't it? I, I said, that $350 price tag, that's probably the monthly lease payment for this car. I can't imagine what the down payment would be, but I said, even so, that's, that's a pretty good deal for a monthly lease uh, amount for that kind of car. He said, no, 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 that's not the monthly lease. He said, that's the price of the car. Can you imagine this? He said, that's the price of the car. I said, you mean that's the price of the car that I pay every month for the next 20 years of my life? He said, no, no, that's the total price of the car. I said, you've got to be kidding me. That can't be the t He said, well, it is. Uh, I said, well, what's wrong with the car? Doesn't it have an engine? I mean, is there, is there no transmission? Said, well, what's wrong with the car? And then I played my trump card. I said, I want you, I, I'm the minister down the street at Epworth United Methodist Church. You've got to tell me what's wrong with the car. He said, oh, there's nothing wrong with the car. It, it runs absolutely fine. Uh, the thing about this car is that it only takes you where you need to go. It doesn't take you where you want to go. I said, let me get this straight. This car will only take me where I need to go, but it won't take me where I want to go. He said, yeah, that's it. He said, you want the car? I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I mean, would you want a car like that? In the text for the morning, we meet a man who Jesus wants to take for a ride to a place that the man does not wish to go. It's a great story that was read just a moment ago. 
Simon is a Pharisee who has invited Jesus to his home for a meal. Now, this is not the first time and it's not the last time that Jesus would sit down to eat with a Pharisee. All of the Pharisees were not Jesus' enemies, and even if they were, it would be the ultimate in hypocrisy for Jesus to eat with one kind of sinner, but not to eat with another kind of sinner. For Jesus to eat with tax collectors and harlots and sinners on the one hand, and refuse table fellowship with a Pharisee on the other would kind of make him guilty of reverse prejudice. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that Luke includes this story at this point to answer the charge that was made against Jesus way back in verse 34. You know, you want to know what's going on in the Bible. You want to read what's before it and what's after it to get the sense of the context. And back in 34, it says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Luke wants everybody to know that Jesus will sit down with and have table fellowship with anybody who desires his company. And it doesn't matter to Jesus if you're the best kind of person or if you're the worst kind of person. This particular meal shows that Jesus has concern, yes, for the social and religious outcasts, but he also has concern for the religious people, the righteous people, the good people. Now, during the course of a meal, a woman, like that person mentioned in verse 34, in fact, the very same word is used, sinner, uh, comes in uh, while Jesus is reclining and eating his supper. Now, you might not know this, but uh, back in the first century, uh, people ate by reclining uh, with their feet out behind them on their left side. They'd prop themselves up either on a pillow or with their elbow, and there'd be a mat in front of them, and they would eat with their right hand. Uh, imagine yourself this afternoon or this evening watching the Super Bowl on your couch. You're laying there on your left side, and the coffee table's there, and that's where you get your guacamole and dip. And that's kind of how it is back then, only there's a people around a the table there. Uh, where the food's placed. And you probably wonder, well, how does a woman like this get into the dining room? But we have to remember, back in the first century, dining for the well-to-do and the famous took place in open courtyards. Uh, and so it's not a very private arrangement, but rather a public one. And so the, the woman's entrance doesn't really cause any great excitement. People are always popping in and out and uh, could easily have access to the place. The meal is more like a, uh, it's more like a, a picnic in a public park than it is a dinner in a private home. What the woman does next, you folks all know. She comes from behind Jesus' feet. She's weeping. She begins to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. She continues to kiss his feet and anoint them with the anointment she's brought. And all this is very startling because no woman, no self-respecting woman of the first century ever let down her hair in public. And the fact that she is touching Jesus' feet has overtones of intimacy that is not appropriate. In any event, Simon the Pharisee is scandalized, and he thinks to himself, here's what it says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. That word back from verse 34. It's exactly at this point that things get really interesting. 
That Jesus does not expel this woman of the city is proof to, Jesus, to Simon that Jesus has no prophet. Simon thinks this, but he doesn't say it. However, Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman this is, and he even knows Simon's thoughts, which is proof by Simon's own standards that Jesus meets the criteria for being a prophet. In fact, he's more than a prophet. This Jesus forgives sins, and as we all know, there's only one who can forgive sins, and that's God. Simon has made two assumptions. First, he assumes that the woman is a sinner, and second, he assumes that if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she was. And from these two assumptions, which are probably correct, he draws two incorrect inferences. First, he infers that if Jesus knew what sort of woman it was who was touching him, he wouldn't allow it. And second, he infers that since Jesus has done nothing to stop the woman, he's not a prophet. Jesus immediately confirms that he not only knows what, side, uh, what sort of woman this is, uh, but also he knows this Pharisee as well. Jesus knows what the Pharisee's thinking before he even says a word. Simon thinks it's Jesus that does not know. But the truth of the matter is, it's Simon that does not know. Simon does not know that nobody's a nobody. Simon does not know that every human being is God's creature and the object of God's care. Simon does not know that even the most shameful person can be forgiven. And he really does not know that no one is righteous in God's sight and that everyone, everyone stand in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. It's not Jesus who does not know. It is a self-righteous Pharisee who is ignorant. Now, in this story, we see two different kind of approaches religious people can take toward other people, people we think to be lesser people. Simon and Jesus are both religious persons in the presence of a very sinful woman. Simon has an understanding of righteousness that causes him to distance himself from her. Jesus' understanding of righteousness is to be moving toward her with forgiveness and blessing and peace. The term, uh, the common term to both of them, of course, is distance. One kind of righteousness keeps people at arm's length. It avoids contact with anybody he or she deems to be a lesser or immoral or unsavory. Another kind of righteousness, Jesus' kind, moves toward people with with understanding and forgiveness and love. Now what we find out in this story is that, it's, that uh, Simon the Pharisee not only wants to keep his distance from this woman, he really wants to keep his distance from Jesus, even though he's invited him to dinner. I think Simon is one of those guys who likes to be seen in the presence of famous people. Now he likes to get selfies with them and hang the pictures on the wall, but he doesn't really want to get close to Jesus. In Jesus' attempt to get Simon to go to a place that he doesn't want to go, he tells a very simple story about two people who owe a debt. One person owing 500 denarii, the other person owing 50. And how the master cancels the debt of both of them when they cannot pay. 
And then Jesus asked Simon a very simple question with an obvious answer. Now, which of them, the two that had their debts forgiven, will love him more? Simon knows the answer. Clearly, the one who has been forgiven the most is going to love the most. I mean, the answer is so obvious that a four-year-old could get that one right. But Simon doesn't answer it in the affirmative. He hedges his answer with the words. You can read them, I suppose. I suppose, he says, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And you folks have all been a part of those kind of arguments. You know, if somebody puts you in a corner you don't like, and they put evidence in front of you that you cannot refute, but you don't like how the argument's going, you always hedge what you say back to them. You say things like, well, well I suppose, or well, in this particular case, or well, you just let me think about that for a little bit. We say things like that. It's a way of, of keeping the logic of the argument, and it's a way of keeping the presenter of the argument at a distance from us. It's, it's a way of uh, admitting, uh, not admitting that we're wrong. Of course, because Jesus is a prophet, he's discerned this about Simon before he even told this parable. He, he mentions to Simon how Simon didn't expect, extend Jesus any of the culturally accepted uh, practices uh, provided uh, for a person who comes to your house, those niceties that we all provide when people come to our houses. You know, we hug them, we kiss them, we take their coats, we welcome them in. None of that happened for Jesus. He says to Simon and to the woman, you gave me no water for my feet. No welcoming kiss, no anointing uh, oil for my head, but this woman has provided all these things and more. How ironic it is that this woman is more hospitable to Jesus than the actual host of the meal. The woman clearly has a desire to be close to Jesus, and Simon wants to be far away. And thus we see a truth that's played out in relationships all of our lives. It's possible to be in the same room with our spouse or our parent, or our child, or our, our boss, or our co-workers, possibly in the same room, and even agree, and yet be miles away. Proximity to Jesus has nothing to do with distance in terms of feet or in, inches, but as to where the heart is, Simon is very far away, and he wants it that way. The harlot is very close, and she wants it that way. For me, the thing that creates the distance or nearness to Jesus is the perception of one's own need. You got that? The thing that creates distance or nearness to Jesus is the perception of one's own need. A person dying of thirst wants ever so much to be near to water. I grew up in Toledo, which is on the edge of Lake Erie, Great Lake. We have plenty of water. If you live in one of the islands out in, Great, in Lake Erie, you don't worry about water at all. Simon thought he had no need of water, if you will, and therefore he felt no love. According to his conscience, he's just fine. And so he receives no forgiveness. Simon's impression of himself is what a lot of us feel like in this room. He's a good person in the sight of God and people. The woman, on the other hand, she's conscious of nothing else but a terrible need, and she's so overwhelmed for love for him who can supply the need, so she receives the forgiveness. Do you see the one thing 
that keeps people away from God. The one thing that shuts a person off from God is a sense of self-sufficiency. If you don't think you need God, you won't have God. It is only those who seek that find, and only those who knock have the door open to them. In some ways, this story is really a reenactment of the story of the prodigal son. You, you know the story of the prodigal son? How the younger brother uh, takes his inheritance early and goes off and spends it on riotous living, and, and then he uh, comes back to his father, just wants to be one of the stable hands, and the father welcomes him with open arms, and he enters into this incredibly deep love with his father, maybe a love that the elder, uh, the elder brother never seems to enter into. The brother who stayed home and did everything right and was good and proper. And, and, and do you know why that prodigal was able to enter into a deeper relationship with his father and the elder brother couldn't? It's because back in that far country, we read a little verse that says, He came to himself. When he was in the pigsty, he came to himself. That is to say, he understood his situation. This woman, this sinner, this harlot, she's come to herself. She has faced up to her moral situation in a way that Simon has not done. The significant difference between the harlot and Simon is not that she is a worse sinner than him. It's possible, frankly, that she's not been. But she realized more fully and deeply the reality of her sin. It is this deeper understanding of her situation that made it possible for a more intimate relationship with Christ. It's very hard. It's very hard for good and respectable people to do this. Pride stands in the way of full realization and confession. Simon saw no need felt no love, received no forgiveness, had no relationship. The woman felt great need and received great forgiveness. And you know, according to the Bible, you'll find this other places, the self-righteous person is in greater danger than the unrighteous person. Now I'm coming to the home stretch of the sermon and uh, you know the climax of the story, of course. It's in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which were many have been forgiven. Hence, notice that word, hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. I hope you notice the connection between love and forgiveness. They are inseparable. A person who is forgiven much loves much. And a person who loves much is forgiven much. If you look at the story as a whole, it apparently is not told to explain why the woman is forgiven. It's not told to explain why she's forgiven, but it's told to explain why she loves. Her acts of devotion and her tears express not so much repentance before forgiveness as they express love and gratitude after she's been forgiven. She's already been forgiven. That's why that word hence is in there. Apparently she had had some earlier encounter with Jesus. She had met Jesus face to face, felt or heard the words she needed to hear, you are forgiven. That's why she comes with a vial of perfume. It's already prepared. 
She's already been forgiven because she knows that Jesus has set her free, and so she's coming to say thank you. Now, I'm going to, if you don't allow it, I want to put you in a car to take you to a place that maybe you don't want to go. The truth of the matter is, everybody in this room uh, has a little bit of Pharisee and a little bit of hooker inside of them. The harlot side, that's easy to see and recognize because these are the visible sins. These are the obvious sins. These are the sins that anybody can point out. But if you notice, they're not the worst kind of sins. It's not the sins that you can see that are the worst. It's the sins that you can't see. Surely you noticed how Jesus treats the two different kinds of sins so differently. The sins of the flesh, they're bad. But they are the least bad of all sins. That's why Jesus seems so incredibly lax with sexual sins or Sabbath sins or ceremonial sins. C.S. Lewis, my favorite theologian, he says... All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people down or in the wrong. The pleasure of being bossy or patronizing. The pleasure of being prejudiced. The the, the person whose heart is full of self-righteous pride. Those are the worst kinds of sins. That's why the cold, self-righteous person who comes to church every week may be far nearer to hell than the prostitute. That's why Jesus said tax collectors and sinners would enter the kingdom of heaven before the highly religious people of the world. Sinners recognize their sinfulness. The self-righteous people, they're blinded by pride. We all have a little hooker in us, a little Pharisee inside us, but the Pharisaical side hides itself the best. And it's the proud the judgmental, the righteous, uh, the self-righteous, the pharisaical person that is in the greatest need of forgiveness. Now, as you might imagine, this isn't the first time I've wrestled with this text. I have a hard time fitting this into my heart and soul and head because I'm one of the religious people. I'm Simon in this story, you know? Uh, you, you don't have to tell me I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person. I mean, I'm really a good person. Do you know I have never been drunk in my life? I've never smoked, never done drugs, never been unfaithful. I think I've been a relatively good pastor, husband, father, grandfather. In fact, the older I get, the better I used to be, you know? It's, uh, it's, just, it's just how it is. I know I'm a good person. So I'm wondering, how can I take this story into my heart and not destroy it, you know? Because I'm that guy. I'm self-righteous. I'm judgmental. I'm proud. How can I fit this into my life? 
So I'm wrestling with this, you know, this, I've been wrestling with this for a long time. And, and you know what you need to do when you're wrestling with a, a theological problem? Take your dog for a walk. That's what you do. Take your, that's what I love about Maine best. It's not your coastline. It's not the weather. It's, not, it's the fact that this, this state is dog-friendly. I mean, it really is. Back in Ohio, your dog's got to be in a leash wherever you go. But around here, you know, there's a sign on, on Lowe's, and the, depart, the Lowe's a place where I go a lot now since we're uh, remodeling the house. <laughs> sign right there, the official policy of Lowe's, dogs are not allowed. It's right there on the door, blue and white. But you go inside with your dog all the time, and they got dog treats at the counter behind, you know. There's an official policy, then there's the main policy, you know. And, so, and dogs are welcomed everywhere. You just really are. I love that about this state. And so, you know, we, we, I took the dogs for a walk trying to sort this out some time ago out at Twin, Twin Oaks, Twin, Twin, Brook, Twin Brooks. And that's a great place. And, you know, folks, you do not need the internet to meet people. You don't. Just go to Quinn Brooks with a dog. You know, or, or if you don't have a dog, take a stuffed animal. You know, that, you'll, you'll meet people there. Because, you know, there, people are all around, and especially in a nice day like that. The place will be packed with dogs and people. And, you know, the people will stand around. They'll talk to each other while dogs sniff each other's backsides. You know? And, and so you're I, I, there's a guy out there. He's a regular and I was uh, uh, talking with him, and, I, and uh, this is some months ago, and I said, you're going to watch the dog show uh, next, next month? And he said, you mean the Academy Awards? I said, no, I mean the American Kennel Club dog show. He said, no, no. He said, I, I'm not watching the American Kennel dog show. I mean, that, those, those dogs are they're, they're too highfalutin. They're, you know, they're, and the, the guy said, just give me a mutt any day. He said, those High breads are too high strung for me, for my liking. I said, well, you, you've got a nice dog. What kind of dog do you have? And he said, uh, she's a mutt. Heinz 57, but she's a great dog. I love her, and she loves me. And I said to the old guy, I said, well, where'd you get your dog? And he said, well, I picked her up off Euthanasia Alley at the dog pound. He said, it's almost, it, it's almost like she knew she was sentenced to die. He said, I, th I think that's why I like dogs from the pound. It's, it's like those rescue dogs are really grateful to you. They're so appreciative, and they show it. And I said to the guy, well, what's your dog's name? And he said, Karis. I said, Karis? That's an odd name for a dog. What, what does that mean? And he said, well... It's a Greek word. It means gift, or giver, or gratitude, or kindness. He said it's the Bible word for grace. I know a black preacher who once said, there are three kinds of people in this world. Them that is, them that ain't, and them that think they is but ain't. Well, this room is filled with all kinds of people just like me. We have some highfalutin purebreds, we got some mixed breeds, and we got some mutts. And yet all of us, whether we realize it or not, we're all in the same exact position. We're on Euthanasia Alley, 
and we're all in our cages. But Jesus has come to the pound today. And he stands in front of the cage. And he says, do you want me to be your master? He says to each and every one of us, follow me. And the highfalutin, uh, proud dumb dog, doesn't even realize he's in a cage. But those of us who have a real understanding of our life and situation before God, when they hear Jesus' words, they cannot help but wag their tails and leap into his arms with joy. There is an official name for when that dog leaves the cage and leaps into the master's arms. And that word is grace. Amen.